You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Bienvenidos a todos nuestros hermanos y hermanas de la isla de Omotepe en Nicaragua. Bendiciones y te felicito de todos. Todo el mundo que está orando para ustedes en este momento. Let's go home. I want to bring you greetings from our brothers and sisters on the island of Omotepe in Nicaragua, Central America. I uh, was not here last Sunday, Mike and I, as well as Mark Kirkendall and Ross Strader. We were uh, teaching at a Bible conference on expository preaching to a group of pastors gathered on an island in the middle of Cochibolca, which is the very large lake in the center of Nicaragua. We accounted for and <laughs> budgeted for 60 people to show up. We had over 100. Good times. It was, uh, it was, it was uh, firmly and tightly packed, I'll say that. But we got to spend four days teaching, expository preaching, and uh, unleashing these indigenous pastors to go and love, lead, guide, and guard their peoples on this island of 50,000 people. And so I'm thankful for Bethel for having care, concern, interest to send us to be able to do that. And I am praying that God will take those loaves and fishes that we four pastors took down there and that God will do a multiplication work. It was so exciting to see guys like Bernardo saying, I cannot wait to tell my people. I cannot wait. And just to see those light bulbs go on, man, is, is one of the greatest thrills of my ministerial life. So here's what I would like to do. I would like to pray for them because they prayed for us in such a way that shook me to my marrow. And so as we speak this morning, there are churches all over the island of Omatepe in Nicaragua that are praying for us. At one point, one of the pastors came up and put his hands on me and prayed for me in a way that I haven't received, well, and since my mom would do it all the time, but she's, you know, a different story. But they are praying for us as we speak. And so I just want to pray for them, and then we'll continue together in worship. Father, I pray for the people and the pastors of Omatepe Island. I pray for the people of Nicaragua. In a very real sense, God, I want to come before your throne, and to the extent that I could, I just want to shove these people forward. You know the extent of the difficulties they have encountered lately, and you love them, and they trust you, and they're hurting. And so would you equip these pastors to shepherd their people through the teaching, the right handling of your word? Father, we do pray for the political situation in Nicaragua and how dire it is that you would intervene. You are sovereign and you are not surprised. There is no crisis in your throne room and yet these people are suffering. So we pray, God, that the gospel would sound forth and that lives would be changed. I pray blessing on those people. Father, thank you for loving them. Thank you that they love you as well. I pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, how often do you feel like everything around you is broken and like things simply aren't the way they're supposed to be? Has that, that ever happened to you? I, I think if you were to ask my family this week, they would say, wait a second, you mean there's a time when it doesn't feel like everything is shattered and splattered? Because we've had uh, a quite an interesting last couple weeks. Everything that could go wrong at our house pretty much has gone wrong at our house. In fact, there were some things that went wrong we didn't even know that could go wrong, and they have. 
And so it uh, finally culminated last night when uh, I got home from Nicaragua about 10.30 last night, just exhausted from the day of travel and driving back from the airport in Houston, finally got unloaded, got inside, I hit the button, and the garage door came right down on the back of my wife's car. <laughs> Take a bow. It's just brilliant. So I'm like, okay, really? Honestly, it's just broken. It feels that way all the time. And all this brokenness and all of this, what I call not the way it's supposed to be uh, can after a while be sort of, well, tiresome. It makes us weary. I mean, where's a person flat out? Oh, and did I mention that while I was on the island of Omotepe in Nicaragua, I'm cruising along on a rented moped and I drove it into a bus stop. Flipped right over it. Probably broke my foot. I've got a bruise on my torso the size of an Etzel. It's incredible. And so I've been kind of limping around the airport, and they're like, whoa, what happened to you? I'm like, I almost bought a Mahindra scooter from an island in Nicaragua because I'm an idiot. And it's exhausting to limp around, I will tell you. It's even exhausting on the other foot. But all of this brokenness and not supposed to be-edness is very, very wearisome and when we work and we try to provide for ourselves a better existence at the end of the season it's it's just exhausting and our souls even get weary and i just want you to know that our text is going to show us this morning that this deeply and profoundly grieves the heart of our god he is not distant he is not disinterested he's not even disappointed He is actively working on our behalf, more than we can probably ever perceive or appreciate. So this morning, John is going to try and convince us of an incredible truth, and it goes like this. Jesus is the Lord of the rest. It's our big idea for the morning. Jesus is the Lord of the rest. Now, we have been all this fall semester walking through the Gospel of John. And I have said a number of times that the Gospel of John is trying to convince us something. And I have used the word uh, propaganda simply because there's not a better synonym for the word propaganda. So that has made a few of you uncomfortable because propaganda has the connotation of being negative or untrue. So let me nuance that and say this is John's convincing and compelling presentation to convert you so that you will believe. So in view of all that, What does John want us to believe this morning? We're going to read John chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 18. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety, and then we will unpack it and see if we can apply it. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, all the way through verse 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and, I, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, 
Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word. So what's going on here? Back to chapter 5, verse 1. John says, after this. Well, what's going on? This is the conclusion of what we're going to call the Cana cycle. In John chapters 2, 3, and 4, we have a loop. Jesus starts at a wedding in Galilee in a village called Cana. And he transforms water into wine, taking the waters of separation and purification, transforming them into the wine of fellowship. And then he goes to Jerusalem, chapter 3, and he clears the temple, and he has a conversation with Nicodemus. In chapter 4, he encounters a woman at a well, and finally a, a Galilean back up in the village of Cana. John is giving us sort of a route to show Jesus' ministry, preparing us for something else. But in chapter 5, we have a major pivot. In chapter 5, it really turns the corner, and it's going to begin to escalate the tension and the conflict that is ultimately going to lead to Jesus' death. Chapters 5 through 10 are the upslope, the on-ramp to what is going to take Jesus to the cross. Chapter 5 is an absolutely pivotal chapter. And John writes this, he says, After this, there is a feast of the Jews. John will mention a number of feasts in his gospel, but this particular one he does not mention. Is it Passover? Don't know. Maybe it could be. Probably not. Many people have said, well, it has to be the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, because of the chronology of what all is going on. Maybe, possibly, we're not told. A lot of people, probably the majority, think this is the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. The interesting thing is, John doesn't tell us. Under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, John doesn't feel the need to tell us which feast this is. And so it doesn't matter. Now, that's an important Bible study technique. John doesn't tell us, and so it doesn't matter. In other words, what he's going to tell us about Jesus is not thematically connected to the feast that Jesus is there for. But here's what we do know. This is a Jewish feast, which means all of the men are commanded, hopefully with their families, to pour into Jerusalem. And why are they there? They are there to celebrate and commemorate the bounty and the blessing of God. They are there to, to, to celebrate how amazing it is to be with God, to experience Him, to recognize Him, and for God to pour down bounty and blessing upon them. It's a time of joy. It's a time of happiness. Jesus goes from a very obscure, remote, rural area right into the center of the Jewish people and the hub of religiosity in the world at that time. John wants us to understand this setting. There's a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He's up in the north, so he's going to travel south, and he's going to travel up in elevation, and he's going to encounter a collision of worldviews. And then he says in verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool. He's going to narrow the setting. We've gone from, from Cana, we've gone south, but up in elevation, to Jerusalem. Very crowded, very busy. 
and he's going to narrow it specifically to a little pool that is on the north side of the temple complex, just next to a little uh, opening in the ancient wall called the Sheep Gate. It's still there to this day. Uh, Nehemiah mentions it in chapter 5. It's a little tiny opening, and John says, and there's a pool there, and this pool is called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, there's a lot going on here. This little pool of Bethesda. Today, it's uh, on the north side of the city. It's still there. Archaeologists have found it, and they've actually found the five uh, columned porches. So you might think, well, that's good. That proves the Bible. No, it proves that they're good archaeologists. So we know that it's there. What it actually is was two separate pools that were sort of side by side. And on every corner of the two pools that made a larger rectangle, there was a porched, I mean, a columned porch. And then in between the two pools was a fifth columned porch. Today, this is uh, very close to the Church of St. Anne's, a uh, uh, Roman Catholic church that is dedicated to the mother of Mary. And you can go to the Pool of Bethesda even today. Although I don't recommend it, there is an eight-inch black Palestinian Arab sewage line that runs right across the top of the Pool of Bethesda. Put there, by the way, very purposefully. So this is the Pool of Bethesda. And then there's this name, Bethesda. What's going on with Bethesda? Well, he says in Aramaic it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Some of your translations might say Bethsaida. Some of them might say Bethesda. Is that an error? Does this invalidate the inerrancy of Scripture? Of course not. What's going on here? There's a Hebrew name for this little place that then gets spoken in Aramaic, the common speech of the people of that day, and then it gets transliterated into Greek. So maybe it's Bethesda, maybe it's Bethsaida, we don't really know. What does it mean? There's a lot of scholarship that says it probably means the house of twin outpourings because there's two pools there, perhaps. There's a lot of scholarship that says actually it's a transliteration of Beit Chesed, the house of loving kindness, the house of covenant-keeping love, the house of merciful love. I don't know for sure which one it is, but I take it thematically it's probably the house of Chesed, Beit Chesed, which is where we get Bethsaida. I don't know that for sure. It doesn't matter all that much, but I do find it interesting because of what's going to take place there. So he says, verse 2, that there's a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, has five roofed colonnades. Verse 3, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Uh-oh. See, this is a feast of Israel. It's supposed to be where the nation Israel is under blessing because of their persistent, right, regular recognition of God himself. They are experiencing his provision, his prosperity, his bounty, and his blessing. But Israel is sick. Just like Nicodemus in chapter 3 was the embodiment, the personification of Israel's religion, these people, there are multitudes, have gathered Israel is not under blessing. Israel is under curse. And there's a whole bunch of them uh, just discarded here at these two pools under these five columned porches. Verse 3 says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and paralyzed. Verse 5, One man was there. Now hold on, what's going on? Some of your translations, if you have an authorized version or a King James version, you're going to have a longer verse 3 and a verse 4. The rest of you have only a bracket or a footnote. What's going on with this? Well, just very, very quickly. Sometime after A.D. 400, 
copyists and editors began to include verse 3b and 4 to try to explain what the man is talking about in verse 7. And what they're writing is probably true, but that, that explanation exists in absolutely no manuscripts earlier than A.D. 400. So what they're writing is probably true. It's just not a part of God's original inspired and inerrant word. I'm not saying that it's not correct. It's just not a part of the original. So what verses 3b and 4 would have said is there were all of these invalids, the blind, the lame, the sick, the paralyzed, and they were waiting for the water to be stirred because they believed that God would send an angel of the Lord. And when the waters were stirred, the first one in would be healed. That's what... They believed superstitiously. And so the editors of Scripture over the centuries began to add that in, and finally it made its way into the actual text, but it's not a part of any of the early manuscripts. So then in verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. That's amazing. We know, anthropologically, the average life expectancy for a male in that day and time and place was about 40 years So if you're an adult male here today and you're over 40, you're like playing with house money, baby. You've crushed the odds. In Israel at that time, if you hit 40, that was pretty much it. And so this guy has been laying there, invalid, probably paralyzed, 38 years, probably a lifetime is what John is saying. The entire lifetime, this guy has been hopeless and helpless and hapless. Now, there's a lot of people who think there's a correlation between the specificity that John gives of 38 years. That's an interesting number. I happen to agree. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, we are told that the nation of Israel wanders around, not aimlessly, God is leading them, but they are wandering around because they're under curse. We have a tendency to think they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They didn't. They wandered for 38 years. Now, there's a lot of scholars that say, no, there's no real correlation, but I don't like those scholars, so I like the idea. I tend to think it fits, but it doesn't matter if it's not a correlation at all. I find it interesting that John uses a specific number. He always tells a thing and has a higher truth. Maybe so, maybe no. Doesn't change the meaning of what's happening here in the slightest. Here's what we know. This guy has been totally helpless an entire lifetime. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, and before I get there, I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus, but this text is helping us to think more clearly and feel more deeply about Jesus. This Jesus is a person who knows us better than we know ourselves and sees through all of the messes that we have made us who we are. This Jesus knows us, and he loves us purely, and he loves us perfectly, more so than we can ever imagine, and he is good. Jesus sees this. Now, by the way, the Jewish leaders would never have gone to the pool of Bethesda. This is where all the sick, the infirm, the invalids, the blind, the paralyzed would be. It was probably not a very pretty place. These people had no influence. These people had no affluence. And the Jewish leaders certainly didn't like this silly superstition. Ugh, that's not what we believe. But it served a purpose. It kept all the unsavory element away from the rest of the people, and more importantly, away from the Jewish leaders. So they tolerated it. They didn't like it, but they tolerated it. And it is precisely there 
that Jesus goes first. You see, because he's not just the Lord of rest. Jesus is the Lord of the rest, do you see? He's the Lord of the rest. That's where Jesus goes, and he's going to single out one guy in particular, and he knows him. He knows the heart and the mind, and he knows what this guy has been through. So he asks him in verse 6, Do you want to be healed? I mean, I've always thought that was such a strange question. This guy's been an invalid for whatever reason, either completely paralyzed or who knows how, for 38 years. Do you want to be healed? Of course the guy wants to be healed. But Jesus does not waste words. There's a reason and a purpose. Jesus wants to know what is this guy's real hope and what is his real help. He wants the guy to say it because Jesus is there to expose it. It's interesting how the guy answers. The guy answers not directly. In verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. <laughs> Jesus asked a yes-no question. This guy reveals what his hope is. This guy reveals what his rest is. By the way, let me just say, the superstition that is alluded to in verse 7, that is clarified in the editor's additions, where they would wait around for an angel of the Lord to stir the waters, and the first one who was an invalid or a handicapped person or lame or paralyzed or blind, the first one to make it in, let me just say on record, there is no way that was actually happening or that God was in that. We know now that Solomon's springs are nearby, and they oftentimes cause the water to bubble, and there may have even been some minor curative properties to the water, things that would affect you know, maybe a mild skin condition, but these waters were never going to heal paralysis, blindness, lameness, all the other infirmities of the invalids, no way. And not only that, it is particularly cruel. Our God would never do that. Where, hey, here's a bunch of invalid people who are paralyzed, but let's have a race for those who cannot run. And the first one to make it in wins, and all the rest of you slow invalid losers, you have to wait around until the next time God decides to take a petty interest in these people. No, sir, no, ma'am, that is not our God. And God, Jesus will say precisely that at the end of our passage today. And by the way, just as an aside, I think it's also a particularly bad system. I mean, when your system is, hey, let's fling a bunch of paralyzed people into a pool, I just think it's a dicey proposition. Like, that's not going to end well. Because if it doesn't work, and you're the second guy in, well, now we've got a problem, right? So there's no way this is what's supposed to happen, but people are demonstrating the lengths to which they will go to not have God. Jesus says, do you want to get healed? The guy doesn't answer the question. He says, I've got nobody. I hear the water, the thing that I think is going to make me well. I see it. I, I hear it. I, I want it, but I can't, I can't do it. What's he saying? Man has failed me. The system that exists has failed me. I have no hope. I have no help. The system in place that you have to be clean. The law of God is, is to make you clean. Jesus is going to run up against that over and over and over again. Now, the law of God was always intended to be temporary. 
God comes to Abraham and says, you will be a blessing to all nations. Your seed, singular, will be a blessing to all nations. But in the meantime, I'm going to give you the law through Moses just for a set amount of time, just for a short span, just for a short season. And the law is good. It shows you what kind of God you have. The law demonstrates what kind of God this is, that he is moral, he is righteous, he is pure, he is trustworthy, he is good. That's what the law shows. Not only that, the law shows me. Man, that's the kind of person I wish I could be. But I can't. The law shows me that's the kind of person I wish my kids could be. (laughs) But they can't. The law shows me that's the kind of person I wish my children would marry. But they won't. The law reveals to me that I am made for so much more and the more I try to accomplish it or achieve it, the more weary I get because I will never be able to do it. This guy says every time he hears the water bubble, he tries to get there, but somebody always beats him. And so Jesus says something very basic in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus does not heal the man because the man says or does anything right. Jesus heals the man because he's doing something for his own glory so that people will understand and believe. Jesus heals the guy because of his unmerited compassion on this man. Do you think of Jesus this way when you think of Jesus? That he just has unmerited compassion upon you? That he really does want our best even if it's not what we want or what we think is best? He simply says, get up, take your mat, and walk. And that's it. He simply says that and the guy says, I have no one, but the one who is the Hesed, who is the loving kindness of God, simply speaks a word, and the man is instantly healed. And it is a glorious thing. This man has been laying there for 38 years. The atrophy of his muscles would have been indescribable. These completely unused and useless muscles are suddenly perfectly able to walk and carry. After 38 years... I'm going to level with you transparently. I sit down and watch a football game for three hours. I can barely make it back to the fridge. I text my sons, bring nachos. Dad's in danger. 38 years. This man lays there and he's suddenly up. What's the point? The word of Jesus instantaneously, redemptively recreates and regenerates. John is telling us, do you see the power that this man has? And he's willing and he's good. He does not speak and wipe out solar systems. He regenerates instantaneously muscle tissue. He's that precisely involved. See, his heart is grieved when people have no rest. Jesus is the Lord of the rest. Jesus speaks these words, and all of this happens in an instant. We're not told that Jesus has to like do the little thing, or no, he just speaks a word and it happens. And then at the verse, end of verse 9, John drops this little bitty nugget. Verse 9 says, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. He didn't have to stretch and go, Oh, don't want to pull a hammy. I haven't done this in a long time. He just gets up and he walks. Now, end of verse 9, That day was the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. The tension is going to mount. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, friends, this is one of the most tragic verses you're ever going to read. Israel's under curse. The vast majority of Israelites are not even there. Seven centuries prior, the Assyrians take off 10 of the tribes and exile them, and they never come back. 586 years prior, the Babylonians come and take the rest off, and they go for seven years. Only 50,000 Jews make it back to Jerusalem and back to 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 the land of Israel. And then the Greeks come through and ransack them. And then the Romans come through and ransack them. And uh, utterly occupying them, taking their resources, imposing their Gentile will upon them. They are under curse. But then there's this guy who everybody in town, everybody knows, he's been lame for 38 years. And here he is walking with his nap mat through the temple uh, compound. Now, you would think the leaders and the teachers of Israel would go, oh, praise be to God. Because in Isaiah, it says, when the age of Messiah dawns, the lame will leap like a calf. Praise be to God, because when Messiah comes, the thistle will turn into a myrtle. The the dead root will turn into a cypress. This must be a flicker of the messianic age. And we're here to celebrate God's bounty at the feast. Everyone, everyone, come gather and look. Instead, oh no, you broke one of our rules. And there is no joy. There is no happiness. Because that's what religion does. It provides no rest. So the Jews said to the man who, has, who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. By the way, that's not true. What the man was doing was absolutely categorically not a violation of Old Testament Sabbath law. It was not at all. What had begun to happen is these Jewish leaders had attached way more additional law to the law of the Sabbath. They made up 615 more commands that they attached to God's law. They went way too far. They said things like, well, you can wear your mat as if it's clothing and walk around. That's fine, but you can't carry it because that's work. You can wear it, you just can't carry it, which is why Jesus says, get up, take your mat and go. He wants him to carry it. They said, you can't walk more than a thousand yards on a Sabbath or it's considered work, but what if I'm hungry? Well then, you can deposit food someplace in the city less than a thousand yards away. And if you get there and it's less than a thousand yards and you stop to eat, that place just became your home so you're not doing work. And they created all of these systems. If you carried something from a public place to a private place, that was worthy of stoning. And so they see this guy. They're like, oh, he's carrying his bed. We know where he's from. He's been at the pools. And he's probably trying to get home. We've got him. Watch what this guy does. Verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Not the slightest hint of gratitude. He just immediately deflects and shifts the blame to Jesus. Hey, don't look at me. Don't get mad at me. In other words, this guy is still sitting in performance as his hope and his rest. I want those who are in charge to think well of me and to not think badly of me. And he's never going to find rest that way. Verse 12, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now I just want you to imagine that. Jesus heals this guy. He doesn't heal all the people there. He could have. 
He didn't. So no, this is not a social justice passage where the church is supposed to be about nothing but resolving the plight of the poor. Yes, the church should be in compassion ministries. Absolutely, that's not what this text is talking about. He could have healed more people, but he was not there on a miracle healing ministry. He was there to show that he is the Lord of the rest. And so he withdraws so fast, this guy doesn't even know who healed him. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a great crowd in the place. Verse 14, afterwards, sometime later, we don't know how much longer, Jesus found him in the temple. Jesus goes and finds him. You're not going to get away that easily. I'm going to have one more conversation with you. See, you are well. I have done a thing, and its effects are continuing. Hey, cinder fellow, this is not going to expire at midnight. I have said a thing. You are well. You are healed. And then Jesus says something that's a little bit troublesome. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And I can't tell you how many articles and commentaries I have read that try to explain that. Well, you know, what Jesus probably means is... No, 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 let me explain to you what Jesus means in verse 14. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. That's precisely what he means. Apparently, there is sickness that is produced by sin. Now, that makes us uncomfortable because you think, whoa, 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 nobody sins as profoundly as I do. Oh, I know, me too. Does every single sin produce sickness? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. But in this guy's particular case, apparently he had done something. We don't know what. And it led to an immediate judgment or consequence that looked like sickness. And apparently that can happen. Does that mean that every time we sin we get sick? No. Does that mean that every time we get sick it's because of sin? No. But at the same time, actually every sickness and disease is a result of sin. Because sickness and disease were not a part of the original created order. Man sinned and wickedness and dysfunction went out across the cosmos. So Jesus literally says to this guy, don't sin anymore. Now that's a pretty hard charge, but apparently this guy had done something and that's why I think Jesus chose this guy out of the crowd. He knows the hearts and minds of all people and says, I know how you got here. You don't even know that I know, but I know, and you don't know that I know, but I do know. Don't do that again. Or you will experience something worse. There are worse things than death and certainly as bad as 38 years of paralysis is, eternal judgment and condemnation are infinitely worse. And so that's what Jesus tells the guy. Look at verse 15. The man fell to his knees and thanked Jesus profoundly for taking away his bondage to the fallen creator. No, wait, actually, that's, that's a bad translation because it doesn't say that because it didn't happen. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. All this guy can do is rat Jesus out. So no, I don't take it that this is a faith conversion as many people have tried to say. There's no faith here. There's no gratitude. There's no recognition. He's just up and around. I think he still had a guilty conscience and maybe didn't even really want to be well because then what was he supposed to do? Verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. We don't know exactly how they were persecuting him. We just know that they were going after him. They did not like the fact that he was working on the Sabbath. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Whoa. We don't know exactly where that takes place. Perhaps it's still there in the temple area, but Jesus drops an absolute bombshell on these Jewish leaders. He calls God my father, not 
our Father. In other words, He's my Father. He's not yours. That must have really stung. They claimed to know God and to love God, but Jesus is going to say they absolutely do not. It is an incredible claim to divinity. Jesus is saying that He is of the same stuff and essence of the Father. Not that He's another God, because He isn't, but He is God. And the Jews understood exactly what He was saying, and because of what He said, they wanted to just have Him move to France? No, they wanted to kill him. That's a pretty quick escalation. Jesus says, the Father is working until now. What's going on? Why is it such a big deal? Well, God created the earth. God created the whole universe in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. Everybody, Jew, Gentile, sort of got that, understood that, and agreed with that. And then, after the sixth day, God rested, and he enjoyed all of his creation, and it was glorious. Utterly amazing, spectacular, and wonderful. And who knows for how long God rested. For the first day, we're told, the first day, and then it was night, the end of the first day. The second day, and then it was night, the end of the second day. The third day, and then there was night, the end of the third day. But the seventh day, we're not told of any specific end. God merely rested. Who knows for how long that occurred? We don't know. But then, man sinned. And God immediately got back to work. He immediately began to work to redeem the hearts of men and women who had rebelled and sinned and were expecting curse, experiencing curse. He is working. Now that, by the way, is the gospel. The fact that God created a perfect, glorious, spectacular environment and then he presents man with the opportunity to make it even better. And they sinned. And instantaneously, God gets to work to redeem the hearts of men and women. Now, if it's me, and I've created the cosmos, and you mess it up, oh, I don't think so. There would be hell to pay. And I would probably drag my feet, but not God. He immediately goes back to work to redeem the hearts of people. And of course, he's working on the Sabbath. Everybody knows that, Jew and Gentile. He is working on the Sabbath because he is God. And so he cannot and he does not violate his own law, but he is working at all times to sustain the universe and provide redemption. And so, of course, God works on the Sabbath. Even the Jewish Pharisees would have understood and accepted that. And so when Jesus says, oh yeah, and I too work on the Sabbath, we'll find that Jesus does about seven different signs or healings or wonders on the Sabbath. Why? Because Jesus is trying to under, help us understand he is the Lord of the rest. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Right from the beginning, God the Father was creating, and so too was the Son creating. And when the Father rested, the Son rested. And in, in complete relational bliss with the Spirit, they celebrated the glories of creation for who knows how long. They watched galaxies collide. They watched plant life come. They watched animals. They even watched Adam and Eve who had no belly buttons. They watched all of it and it was glorious! And then man sinned. And Jesus said, and my Father immediately got back to work and I immediately got back to work. That's why Jesus does all of these things. Jesus is trying to tell us, see, it's not that the Sabbath it's not that man was made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made 
for man. Same thing John, or Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, of the rest. He is the only one that can provide rest. Our performance never will. It'll never save us. It will never give us rest. And so the Jews begin to try to kill him. Verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that was a big deal, but he was even calling himself God, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There's no confusion. There's no mistake. The Jews understood perfectly what Jesus was claiming. Ironically, it's the height of arrogance to claim equality with God. And yet Jesus humbled himself even to death on a cross. Ironically, these who claimed to know and love God, these were the ones who were functionally elevating themselves as God, refusing to receive his rest, even during a period of festival feast. So, what is John trying to get us to understand so that we believe? Why is this text here? Well, let me remind you that Jesus is the Lord of the rest. Let me give you three quick implications for this. Number one, it goes like this. See your wreckage. See your wreckage. I have found in my own life and as I've spent pastoral time with people that those who are convinced that they can always see are often the most blind. They just can't actually see. Often we as a people, we can tend to think that we're doing pretty good or at least better than a whole lot of other people we know, right? But then the little things of life come at us from all directions and they pummel us into a submissive, weary person. And so we struggle. We keep slugging it out, thinking that surely, surely God will pay attention to how moral and decent and how appropriately we vote and then he'll pour in the blessings. Come on, God, I deserve this. Now you would never actually say that out loud, would you? but functionally that's how many of us live our lives. All the while the reality is that I, I am the man at the pool of Bethesda. I'm not in the story. I'm not Jesus. I'm not even the religious leaders. I'm the poor guy who is utterly helpless, counting on something else, hoping that I'll hear some stirring of water someplace else that will give me rest. Ooh, there's a new iPhone. It's a stirring of water. Ooh, it'll give me rest if I can just get that. You see, I'm the man at the pool of Bethesda. I simply cannot produce my own rest and nobody else can produce it for me either. This is my sorry state of affairs left to my own devices. And I'm even talking about a person, by the way, who's a Christian. The moment we try to sit back in our own performance and earn our own rest, we begin to feel the exhaustion of trying to walk around on legs that are lame. But something tells me that I am made for so much more. Something tells me there is a happiness, a joy, a rest that I am made for that I can't quite seem to find, even if I'm a Christian, if I'm looking in all the wrong places. So we want to see and recognize that you and I are the kinds of people that daily and desperately need Jesus to speak a word to us. Because apart from him, we are tired and beaten. By the way, this is not a call for you to have some legalistic devotion and quiet time. Like, I'm going to read my Bible, and then God's going to bless me. Because he's probably not. It is, Lord Jesus, I can't wait to come to your word to hear and see how glorious you actually are. There's also, by the way, no one who is beyond the knowledge, care, and power of Jesus because he is the Lord of the rest. 
If he cares about an invalid of 38 years sitting in stink by a pool in ancient Jerusalem, then friend, there's no way that you or I are ever beyond or outside of his reach. He is the Lord of the rest. Which brings me to point two. After see your wreckage, it's this. Cease your performance. Now, I want to be as practical as I possibly can. Some of you are thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. I got it. But I'm not trying to earn my salvation by what I do. I believe in Jesus and all that. But, but you don't understand. My life is still hard. My life is still exhausting. I've got problems. No, I get it. Perhaps you believe in Jesus and all that, but you're still trying to earn and produce your own rest. And let me just tell you, if that's you, Christian friend, you will never achieve it. Perhaps you're so tied up with trying to impress other people that all you care about is what others think, and so you're always striving. The secret siren song of your soul is, if I can just, if I can just, if I can just get her to pay attention to me, I'll be happy, I'll have rest. If I can just get him to pay attention to me, if I can just get my boss to notice me, if I can just get my wife to stop doing that, if I can just get my husband to start doing that, if I can just, if I can just, if I can just get them to accept me, don't they see? I've even moved houses, I've even bought a different vehicle. If they can, if I could just, if I can just, if I can just, and you'll die that way. Cease your performance. Perhaps you think maybe you just need a little bit more resources, financial security, whatever, to feel really secure. And then ah, you, can, you can finally have rest. And so you keep leaning forward, working and working and working, trying to build your rest, but you'll never, ever, ever arrive there because Jesus is the Lord of the rest, not you and not me. Or perhaps you think that Christianity is all about obedience. Let me just say, I, I have come to believe as I hear people talking about that, that what God desires most from us is obedience. That is nothing more than a euphemism for legalism. All too often, it's a forced morality of the will, and it's exhausting. Listen, the Jewish leaders were the most moral people you could ever meet. They claimed to know and love God too, but they missed the point with all their forced rules. They went beyond God. God wants more than anything for his people to rightly and regularly recognize him. Luther said, Love God, do as you please. Now that makes some of you very uncomfortable. Whoa, 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 whoa. Love God, do as you please. But then what if people go off and do bad stuff? They are anyway. But if you truly love God, then his character begins to supernaturally flow out of your character. If we truly look to and love this Jesus and love this God, then obedience will be an outflow of our hearts. And so then it'll be, as David Zoll says, what we ought to do will become synonymous with what we want to do. I'm not obeying because I have to. I'm obeying because it's who I am. Simply because I'm looking at Jesus. So see your wreckage. Seeks your performance. And number three, seek your rest. Look at this Jesus that John describes. Do you hear this story and do you just go, yeah, it's another Bible story? Or do you go, isn't he amazing? Isn't he incredible? Isn't he like everything that you wish you could be? Isn't he like everything that you wish your kids can be? Isn't he like everything you wish your kids would one day marry? This Jesus is incredible. The same stuff that makes the, back, the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I see he goes to this dirty, nasty, filthy, smelly place of invalids who cannot pay him back and he finds this one and he goes, Get up. 
I go, man, I wish I was that kind of guy. I wish I could know that guy. I, I wish I would say the things that he would say. I wish I could do the things that he did. That's the kind of Jesus that you are supposed to seek. Not just the one who you think is disinterested or disappointed in you. Seek your rest. And he offers this to us freely because Jesus, the chesed, the loving kindness of God, is also the one who is the walking around fulfillment of God's law. It is a person. And he offers that life to us. And here's, here's what's crazy. Even though he is not physically present, he wants to be active in our lives. And he wants to experience the life we live by his spirit. It's incredible. He actually wants to be involved immediately in each one of our individual lives. It's the kind of Jesus that's worth following. See, he is the Lord of the rest. Augustine famously said, God has made us for himself and we are restless until we find ourselves in him. All of us have this invitation to be found in Christ and to rest and to even bask in his finished work so that we never just say, if I could just, if I could just, if I can just, and just go, he is just and it is finished. (sighs) When was the last time? He just said it was finished. You don't have to strive for anything else. It's not supposed to be like this. Everything seems to be broken and uphill and into the wind, but one day it will ultimately be gloriously great. But until that time, until that actually occurs, I invite you to truly rest in what he is and what he has done. God really does want a bigger, more beautiful Sabbath for the beloved. Jesus is the Lord of the rest. And so the question that Jesus asks is the question that that now I get to ask. Do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? If you're not a believer and you're still trying to somehow achieve wholeness, happiness, and rest, let me just tell you, turn to Jesus. He is who he says he was and he did what he said he would do. If you're a Christian, but you're still dealing with so many frustrations and disappointments in life, and you're thinking, if I could just, if I could just, cease striving and know that He is God. And what He wants for you more than even you want is for you to experience rest. Do you want to be healed? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for who You are, for what You have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And I do pray, Father, if there's one this morning, if there's two this morning, if there are more who don't know you, who are still restless, would you move by your spirit that they would find themselves in you? Would they believe? Would they understand? Would they agree? And would they live like it was true? For the rest of us, Father, who are still so undone when we're ignored by a friend, when we're still so undone when we're not noticed at work, when we're so undone when things don't go our way, would you give us rest? Because you are the Lord of the rest. Help us to know that we have all that we need in Christ for life and godliness. May it be exactly as I have prayed, Father, or even better. And I pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.